All right. Here we go. Chronicles of Narnia. I've got four boys at home, and our older boys love this Chronicles of Narnia series. I love the movies over the books, just because it's easier to watch a movie than it is to read a book. That might be telling, but it's true. One of the last movies that came out was Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we were introduced to a character by the name of Eustace. Eustace is that guy. Everybody hates him, and he hates everybody. He's selfish. He's mean. It seems like nobody can get along with him, right? But Eustace finds himself on a magical ship, the Dawn Shredder, with his cousins, and they're prepared to take a great voyage. At one point, the ship lands on an unexplored island, and Eustace wanders off by himself, and he finds a cave full of dragon's riches. There are gold jewels, there are rubies, there's all sorts of precious things all over the place. Eustace thinks, I'm rich! I'm rich! And immediately, because he is who he is, he thinks that he'll be able to pay everybody back. Everybody who laughed at him, everybody who slighted him, everybody who ever stepped on him. Now that he is rich, man, they are going to get it. He's going to be able to pay them back. So Eustace starts rummaging through the gold and he finds the, a gold bracelet. And he begins to put that gold bracelet on his arm. And the next scene, because of his greedy and dragonish thoughts, Eustace is transformed into a fire-breathing dragon. Now, everybody on the ship, his cousins, everybody, they're fearful of this dragon because they don't know who the dragon really is. So finally, his true identity is revealed when... Eustace picks up Edmund and flies him over to a part of the island where his fire has breathed and carved out into the land. I am Eustace on the ground. Throughout the rest of the movie, Eustace proves to be as faithful as a dragon can be throughout the rest of the movie. He helps them out, supports them, helps them accomplish the mission. Now what's interesting is both the film and the original book has some similarities into how Eustace was changed from a dragon back into a boy. And both stories in the book and the movie involve the lion, Aslan, using his claws to scratch off the dragon's skin. But I think the book's version is, is a little different. I probably like that one a little bit better. Because the book's version says that Eustace painfully uses his own claws to remove three layers of dragon's skin. And each time he begins to loosen and to remove one of those layers of dragon skin, he becomes discouraged to realize there's more dragon skin underneath. And finally, finally Aslan comes and he says, you have to go deeper. And he thrusts his claws so deep into Eustace's dragon skin, so deep that Eustace thought that Aslan was going to claw his heart. Eustace, describing this, said this was the worst pain I've ever felt as Aslan clawed deeply, removing the deepest layers of dragon skin, finally transforming Eustace back from the dragon into a boy. See, what's fascinating about this picture is this is what the Bible does. This is what Jesus does. We think surface. We think and we live in the here and the now. And oftentimes we can't see past our immediate need. 
But the Bible, the Bible looks deep into our heart and exposes things that are so deep that we might not even, even realize they were ever there. So we continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark called Jesus the King. We've seen Jesus has started his ministry and his priority in ministry was not just healing people, but it was preaching. Preaching about repentance and belief in the gospel of God. Today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And this is one of those passages that exposes that our surface thoughts aren't deep enough. Our physical concerns aren't enough. That Jesus wants to go deep to truly expose us and to get to the point where we can truly be changed by him. So today, today I'm going to ask you to open yourself up a little bit. To let God probe deep into your heart. Because unless we allow God to probe deep into our hearts, we will never experience this lasting change that Jesus offers us. So would you pray with me? God, we are thankful for the opportunity to open up your word. God, I'm thankful that we have the opportunity where this isn't uh, come and hear the pastor give his an opinion. But God, this is the opportunity for your word to be spoken. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. God, I pray that you would help us to understand what it is that your word says. And God, as, as you want to go beyond the surface, as you want to dig deep into our hearts, God, I pray that we would be open to that. I pray, God, that we would open ourselves up to you, that we would allow you to, to bring that lasting change to our lives. God, we pray for your presence right now. God, I pray that you would do what you said you would, and that is change our lives. I pray that today that you would do a mighty work. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. First two verses says, And when he returned, being Jesus, he returned to Capernaum some days later, after some days. It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So if you remember where we picked up last week, last week Jesus had been in Capernaum and Jesus had spent a night where the whole town of Capernaum came to Jesus and Jesus was healing people and just healing and healing and healing and all these different things. And, and so Jesus went off in the middle of the night off by himself to go and pray and his disciples came and said, hey Jesus, man, this is going really good. Let's come back. Let's, let's capitalize on it. People want to come and, and, and you should give them what they want. And Jesus says, no, that's not why I came. And Jesus left the city of the town of Capernaum to go into the villages and the towns around Capernaum to preach the gospel to them, to preach that message of repentance and belief in the gospel. And it says, after a few days of doing that, Jesus came back to Capernaum and he came home. Verse one says he was at home. Now we don't know if he had some different home. Maybe, maybe he was, remember he, he was stayed at uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house. So maybe he's at Peter's mother-in-law's house. But word gets out that Jesus is at home. Jesus is home. And so people start coming and they start flooding the house. There were some people undoubtedly that would have been curious about who this Jesus is. There were some people who remember, hey, this is a Jesus that was healing all the people. And so we want to come and see him do that. And undoubtedly, there would have been some people who came to see Jesus who were brand new bright-eyed disciples who were hanging on every word that Jesus shared with them. And so outside, the, the, the house gets so full that there's no room inside the house. There's people crowding and jockeying at the door, trying to get to the point where they can get in to see this Jesus. 
And it continues in verses 3 and 4. It says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And they could not get near him because of the crowd. So they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. This is kind of fascinating. You just got to picture this. Jesus is, is in the house, and he's teaching the people, and it's full. Nobody can get in. And these four friends have this guy that they love, have one of their friends that they care about, and they will stop at nothing to get this guy to meet Jesus. And so they go to the front door, and they can't get in the front door, so they climb up on top of the roof, and they cut a hole in the roof to drop, Jesus, to drop this man down so this man would have the ability to meet Jesus. I'm struck. I'm struck by these four friends. I'm struck because we see such a great love. We, we see really what friendship should really be like. You've got friends that are so concerned for their, for their paralyzed friend. Friends that, are, that have such concern and such affection and such love that they will do just about anything to help this man's life. And I think what these four friends do is they're going to teach us a few things about love. And they're going to teach us a few things about faith. And about the faith, the, the kind of faith that moves. So a couple of things I want you to see about their faith. First, I want you to see that these friends had a complete, a, a total trust, a total faith that Jesus could heal this man. They believed without a shadow of, of a doubt that Jesus would change this man's life. They knew it deep to their core. I mean, there's no way that these guys would have gone to such crazy extremes to get their friend to meet Jesus if they didn't believe that Jesus was the answer, that Jesus had the ability to change this man's life. I mean, it says that they, they went, they picked up the guy in his, in his, on his mat. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever done that where you get a sheet and you put one of your kids in the middle and you start swinging them around, okay? So that's kind of what they did. They, they, they picked the guy up and, and, and they carried, now how far did they have to carry him to Jesus? I mean, maybe, maybe they were in West Valley that had come all the way downtown. Maybe they were in East Valley. And I, I mean, how far did these guys have to go to get their friend to Jesus? You think about, you think about this, and you think about as they're walking. You gotta, you gotta picture this. You gotta picture all the people stopping and staring. Man, look at those guys. They're carrying that guy in that sheet. What are they gonna do, throw him in the river? I mean, I mean, you got to picture all the kids watching this that are standing and pointing. You got to picture all the teenagers getting their cell phones out, taking pictures to post on Facebook for what they saw walking down the street. I mean, you've got to picture this. They had such complete faith, such total faith that Jesus could change this man's life. Because if they didn't, there's no way, there's no way they would have followed through with this. I mean, they would have said, you know, halfway through, they would have said, man, this is embarrassing. Everybody's looking at us. Everybody's pointing. This is embarrassing. I, I'm out, man. I'm out. But because they had total and complete faith, they were willing to go through these crazy extremes to do that. Secondly, I want you to see that they had a persistent faith. They had a persistent faith. There was no stopping them. There was nothing that was going to... They came into an obstacle. Maybe it was the heat of the day. Maybe it was that, that house being packed, the front door being jammed. Every obstacle they came to, nobody said, man, the door's closed. I guess this isn't God's will. No obstacle stopped them. They kept going. They kept pushing forward for a way for their friend to meet Jesus because they knew it was necessary. Thirdly, I want you to see that they had a creative faith. 
They had a creative faith. I mean, the door is blocked. They can't, not one of them can get through the door, let alone all four of them with their paralyzed friends, friend. But they are persistent, and they will stop at nothing to see their friend meet Jesus because they believe that Jesus will change his life. And so they get creative. They get inventive. They start looking around the house, and they notice, now oftentimes in houses those days, they had an uh, outdoor staircase that would lead onto the flat roof. And so the friends, they're, they're getting creative. They're looking around and saying, hey, there's a staircase. What if we climb up on top of the roof? Maybe there'd be a way for us to get this friend of ours to meet Jesus, maybe somehow through the roof. And so they get creative. And they carry the man upstairs on top of the roof. Now, in those days when we talk about a roof, the roof was a little different than the roof that we know. It was a flat roof, but it consisted of, of beams that were two to three, laid two to three feet apart. And then on top of those wood beams, there would be all sorts of branches that were tightly packed together, uh, going crossways. And then on top of that, they would put leaves or reeds or whatever they could find, and they would create another layer on top of that. And then on top of that, they would bring up about a foot of, of dirt, of clay. And they would put that on top of that, and then they would pack it down really hard so that it would be resistant to water. And so you've got to picture these guys. It's like, we've got to do something so our friend meets Jesus. And so they start digging. They start digging the soil up. They start, they start pulling the, 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 the wood and the branches. I mean, it's quite the scene. You can imagine if you were inside the house, you would have heard all the digging. If you were inside the house, that dirt would have been falling on your head. You would have been saying, man, what's going on here? But they were so creative and, and persistent, that they were going to find a way for their friend to meet Jesus. And the fourth thing I want you to see about their faith is their faith was sacrificial. I mean, they're cutting a hole in the roof. Someone's going to have to fix that hole, or someone's going to have to pay to have that hole fixed. So we're talking, we're talking, it's going to require time, it's going to require labor, it's going to require expense. See, they had a faith that believed, that truly believed that Jesus was the answer and they were willing to pay the price for their friend to meet Jesus. So I, I, I look at the story. I look at these four friends and all that they did to help their friend meet Jesus. And I just, I just begin to wonder, what does that teach us? What does that teach us about love? What does that teach us about faith? I mean, we don't know all the context of this story. We don't know what kind of relationship these guys had with this paralyzed man. Maybe he was a family member. Maybe he was a childhood friend. I mean, we don't know all of it. But what we do know is they, they shared a great love for this man. They shared a great concern for this man. They shared a great commitment for this man. They wanted nothing more than to see this man's life changed. So I start thinking about their faith, their complete faith that Jesus could change this man's life. Their persistent faith, their creative faith, their sacrificial faith. And I begin to wonder, what about myself? What about me? What about the people I love? The people that I am in relationship with? I mean, do I really believe that Jesus can change their life? Do I really believe that Jesus is the answer? Do I, do I really believe that Jesus is the only way? Do we really believe that Jesus is the only way? Do we really believe that Jesus has the ability to change a person's life? Because I tell you what, if we believed 
that? Wouldn't we go to any length, to any length, to share with our family and friends, to get our friends to meet Jesus? Wouldn't we go to any length if we truly believed that Jesus was the answer, if Jesus was the only way? Wouldn't we do anything in our power to get our friends and our family members to meet Jesus? I mean, how many times, how many times do we shrink back, fearful of what the other person will think about us if we bring up Jesus, if we bring up the topic of church? How many times do we shrink back with fearful of what the other person will say? I mean, not every one of us struggles with that. But there's enough of us in here who do. Myself sometimes included. See, if we believe that Jesus is the only way, then shouldn't that be the foundation for all all of our relationships? Shouldn't that be the goal behind the relationships we have with people so that we could introduce them to this Jesus who has the ability to truly change their life, who's the only one who can change their life forever? I mean, shouldn't we be willing to risk everything for that? What about persistency? I mean, I mean, how quick are we to give up when we start talking to our friends about faith? I mean, if we get shot down, how quick are we to say, oh, I guess that's it, I'm done. I'm not going to talk to that person about it again because it was awkward. I mean, I think about my own faith. I think about my own faith. When I was in high school, there were some Christians around me that, that for years would say, Hey, Kevin, can I tell you about Jesus? Hey, Kevin, can I tell you how to have a relationship with Jesus? This happened for, for, for better part of a, over a year. And I can't tell you how many times I said, No, no, that's not for me. No, I, I'm already religious. I don't need that. But you know what it took for me to, to be willing to listen? It took persistency. If somebody would have just come the first time, I would have shut the door. And I wouldn't be where I am today. It takes persistency. And what about, what about creativity and sacrifice? Shouldn't we do anything possible for us to see others come to Christ? Shouldn't we be willing to sacrifice of ourselves to, to be creative, to see other people come into a relationship with Jesus? I mean, I mean somebody says, well, well why? why is a church? Why would you go and adopt Martin Luther King Elementary School? I mean, there's no, there's no church planting manual that says, go adopt an elementary school and your church will be great. I mean, that's not what we're told to do. I mean, why would we, why would we want to have a student store at Martin Luther King? Why would we want to be involved in that? See, these are just creative ways for us to build relationships with families. So we have the opportunity to say, can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you about who Jesus is and what he has done for you? And what's fascinating is in verse 5, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. See, it says, because of their faith, Jesus then is going to speak to the paralytic. Notice that the word there is plural. It's plural. Jesus is saying, because of your faith, Yes, the faith of the paralyzed man, as well as the faith of your friends, because of your faith, I'm going to respond. I'm going to move. See, never, never discredit the impact that your faith can have on another person. Never discredit your faith, the impact your faith can have. Now, this doesn't mean that you can believe for somebody else because we know everybody has to believe in Jesus. We get that. 
And I don't know how, and I, and I can't quite explain it, but, but I can say do not discredit the impact that your faith can have on somebody else's life. I mean, how does this work? Perhaps, perhaps because of the complete faith that they had that Jesus could change this man's life. Maybe because of their persistent faith. Maybe because of their creative and their sacrificial faith. Perhaps God is moved. Perhaps Jesus has moved to finally reveal himself to that paralyzed man. I don't know how it works, but I know that our faith has the ability to impact those around us. And so now we transition a little bit from looking at those friends to looking at the other characters in the story. This, this paralyzed man, what do you think he wanted from Jesus? What do you think he was looking for? Healing. He's paralyzed. I mean, I mean the thing he wants most is to be able to, to walk. I mean, remember Jesus was known in Capernaum as being the healer. He spent that whole night healing all sorts of people. And so Jesus comes back and they're thinking, yes, Jesus, heal, do this. But instead of saying rise up and walk, Jesus says in verse 5, he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I'm the paralyzed man, I'm thinking, um, well, well, thanks, Jesus. Thanks. Thanks, Jesus. But I've got a little bit more of a pressing need. That's not quite what I asked for, Jesus. Jesus, my pressing need is my legs don't work. And if you could bring healing to my legs, I mean, I'd be great. I'd never ask you for anything else ever. I'm just looking today. I'm looking for healing. I'm looking to have my legs work again. But Jesus, Jesus knows something that the man doesn't know. That this man has a much deeper problem than just his physical condition. We talk about going deeper. We talk about looking deeper. Jesus is saying to him, he's saying, I understand your problems. I see your suffering. And I'm, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. But I want you to look deeper. I want you to realize that the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering. It's his sin. The main problem in a person's life is never their suffering. It is always their sin. Now, I don't know how that hits you. It almost seems kind of offensive, right? You're kind of like, Jesus, all this guy wants is for his legs to work. I mean, this guy would be great. See, if someone says to you that the main problem in your life is not what has happened to you, it's not what people have done to you, the main problem in your life is sin. It's how you've responded to those things. I mean, it almost seems arrogant and offensive. I mean, if somebody says to you, the main problem in your life is not what has happened to you. It's not what people have done to you. It's how you've responded to it. That just doesn't seem very loving. That doesn't settle well with us. But truthfully, this idea is actually rather empowering. Because it's, it's, it's saying, you can't do very much about what happens to you. You can't control the way that people treat you and what they do to you. But you can control how you respond And you can do something about yourself. You see, so many times when we talk about sin, we think about sin being all those things that we shouldn't do. Lying. uh, Lust. uh, uh, Murder. All these things. That's that's true. That's what sin is. Sin is not not doing doing those things as sin. But sin is much more than that. It's not just lying or stealing or lust or whatever the case may be. It's ignoring the God who created us. 
It's, it's rebelling and living against him and living without reference to him. It's saying, yeah, God, you're there, but I'm going to live my life my way. I'm going to do my own thing without seeking your input, without letting you guide me and lead me. So Jesus is telling this paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. What he's doing is saying, we got to dig deeper. You got to dig deeper. By coming to me and asking me for only uh, your body to be healed, he's saying, you're not going deep enough. I mean, that's, that's Eustace taking off that first layer of dragon skin. It's not deep enough. Jesus wants to go deeper. He wants to go deeper to the deepest longings of our heart. This man, absolutely, with every fiber of his being, he wants to be healed. He wants his legs and his body to work fully again. And he's probably thinking, he's probably thinking, if I, if I could only walk, if I could only have use of my legs again, then I would be set for life. I would never be unhappy. I would never complain. I would never ask for another thing ever. If I could only walk, then everything would be all right. And Jesus, like a good parent, says, my son, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. I mean... It almost sounds harsh, but it's profoundly true. Jesus is saying, when I heal your body, if I do heal your body, you'll, you feel like you'll never be unhappy again. But as any parent knows, how many times has your kid asked, and your child asked, hey, dad, if you just got me this, 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 this electronic device, if you just got me the iPad, I would never ask for another thing in my life. I mean, parents, you've heard this. Your kids say, man, if you just do this, I'll never ask for another thing. And what happens? Two months down the road, three months down the road, the euphoria is gone. And the roots of our discontentment are so deep in our human hearts. And, and Jesus knows that if he heals this man, that excitement, that, 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 that celebration over his legs working is only going to last for a short amount of time. Before his heart longs for something else. I mean, think about this. Think about this. Think about how many people think, man, if I just had more money, I would have everything I'd ever want. I'd be satisfied. If I just had more money, man, everything would be perfect, and I would never have another need again. What's interesting is, is if you, there, there are studies that show for people that won the lottery. You think people winning the lottery? I mean, isn't that like the epitome of like the good life? Man, if I just win the lottery, wouldn't it be wonderful? It's interesting that 70% of the people that win the lottery go bankrupt within a couple of years. 70% of those people go bankrupt within a couple of years. See, the root of our problem is that our natural longings for whatever it is, they're never deep enough to satisfy what has gone wrong in our hearts and what has gone wrong in our world. As Jesus, as Jesus is digging deeper into this man's soul and into our souls, he would say our biggest problem is not that we need our legs to work, but our biggest problem is that we are building our identity on something other than Jesus. Our biggest problem is that we are building our identity on something other than Jesus. Think about it. Think about it. Be honest with yourself. What's that one thing that you're longing for? What's that one thing that you're thinking, man, if I just had this, if God provided this, I would never ask for another thing. I would be so happy. I'd be so satisfied. Maybe it's more money. Maybe it's, it's, it's success at work. 
Maybe it's respect that you feel you deserve in the community. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a popularity. Maybe it's, it's, maybe even it's physical healing. If you could get up and walk. If Jesus would just give this to you, you would have everything you've ever imagined and you would be happy forever. Think about it. This applies to us as Christians and non-Christians. Every one of us. We have these longings that if we just got this, we would be happy. And so we look to whatever that is. We look to that to save us from oblivion. We look to that to save us from disillusionment, to save us from mediocrity. What we do is we make that our savior. Now, we never, we never say that. We never use that words. We, we wouldn't ever say that something other than Jesus is our savior. But this is what we do. We make whatever it is the big everything. And our identity is so tied into it. This is, this is why the movie Rocky, you think of the movie, for the Rocky number one. And Rocky is, is trying to decide, should I fight? Should I fight? And he tells Adrian, Adrian, I have to fight. Otherwise, I'm a bum. If I don't go follow through, if I don't fight him, I'm a bum. See, this is what we do. We have the same idea. Like, if I could just have this, then everything would be good. Then I would be happy. If I just had enough, enough if my wife just respected me. If, 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 if my work gave me enough money. If, if my kids behaved. If any of these things, then everything would be good. And it would validate who I am. And if you never quite get it, you never quite get there. You're left angry. You're left unhappy. You're left empty. And if you do get it, oftentimes you're left more empty. You're left more unhappy because it becomes your ruler. You've distorted your deepest wish by trying to make it your savior. And then when you finally get it, it becomes, it turns on you and becomes your ruler. Somebody once suggested that the, the worst and cruelest practical joke that God could play on you would be to give you your deepest wish, your deepest longing. See, truthfully, even when we talk about church, truthfully, most of us started seeking God or came to church. It's because we had problems and we're asking God just to give us a little bit of boost so that we can get back to pursuing the things that we think will give us value and will give meaning to our lives. We get back to pursuing our deepest wish. The problem is we're looking to something other than Jesus as our Savior. And almost always when we go to Jesus saying, this is my deepest wish, almost always when we come to Jesus saying, Jesus, would you just give me my deepest wish? Jesus would say to us, we need to go a lot deeper than that. This paralyzed man, Jesus, my deepest wish is just that I could use my, my, my legs again. And Jesus says, we need to go deeper than that. Jesus is telling this paralyzed man, your working legs are just the surface, but they will, not, they will not solve the deepest longings of your heart. Listen, success and a perfect marriage and, and, and perfect kids and, and, and perfect family and money, they will not satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Only a relationship with Jesus will satisfy that. Only a relationship with Jesus will satisfy your deepest longings of the heart. See, when you accept Christ as your life, when your sins are forgiven, you actually have a relationship with Jesus. He becomes your Savior. 
And when he becomes your savior, he fulfills you. Your career doesn't fulfill you. Your relationships don't fulfill you. Jesus fulfills you. And, and you know what happens is if we fail Jesus, guess what? He forgives us. No other savior does that. No other savior will forgive you when you drop the ball and fail. So Jesus is speaking to this paralytic man, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. This was rather unexpected by the crowd. The crowd kind of expected Jesus to say, Hey, you're healed. Get up and walk. And so what happens is this unexpected response by Jesus, it triggers Jesus' first clash with the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. It says again in verse 6, he says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? See, Jesus, Jesus has the ability to read the motives of our hearts, of the people around him. And so he can read the, the, uh, what's happening in the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees around him. And so when Jesus says... Son, your sins are forgiven. Those religious leaders are shocked. And they're, they're, they're rather angry because of that. Because they believe that Jesus is blaspheming. They, mean, they believe that Jesus is showing contempt or irreverence to God because he's claiming to do what only God can do. I mean, they think to themselves, isn't it, isn't it only God who can forgive sins? Isn't he the only one to forgive sins? And they're right. See, Ben Rodriguez on the slides and, and Brian Howard. If I were to go hang out with the three of us, we go and watch a football game or something. We're hanging out. If Brian Howard makes a fist and, and punches Ben in the nose, okay? Ben's going to fall down on the ground because Brian's a big guy. And he's going to cry and there's going to be blood and some different things. This happens. Now, if I go up to Brian and I say, Brian, I forgive you for punching Ben in the nose. Man, it's okay. I forgive you. It, it's over with. When Ben got done crying, he'd get up and say, Kevin, you can't forgive him. You can't do that. He didn't wrong you. He wronged me. I'm the one he punched in the nose. I'm the only one who can forgive Brian. You can't forgive Brian for me. I'm the only one who can forgive him. So when Jesus looks at this paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying, your sins against me are forgiven. And the only person who can say that to a human being, the only person who has the ability to say your sins are forgiven against me to a human being is God himself, the creator of us, the creator of the world. See, Jesus Christ, by forgiving this man, is claiming to be God Almighty. The religious leaders, they know it. They know that this man is not just claiming to be a miracle worker, but Jesus is claiming to be Lord of the universe, God Almighty. And understandably, they're furious about it. They don't know who this Jesus is. And really what's cool is really this becomes the first step for Jesus toward, towards the cross. Why, why did they put Jesus on the cross? Because of this claim right here. Because he claimed to be equal with God. So how does Jesus respond to their thoughts? says in verse uh, 8, rest of the text, he says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or say, Rise up, 
Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. The big question, the big question is this. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your mat and walk? Which is easier? Now, there's commentaries that have spoken on this for forever. And it's interesting as you read through the commentaries, there's really not a conclusive answer to that question. Which is easier? To forgive this man's sins or to heal him? In fact, there's one commentator There's one commentator who said, after countless pages were written on this, we still have this good question before us, which is easier? My answer is it's still hard to say. I mean, on the first reading, just as we read through, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but not everybody can heal. So to show you, therefore, that I am the Lord with the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and walk. He's saying it's, it's easier to forgive sins. It's harder to heal. So I'm going to heal to show you that I have the power to forgive sins. But this question of which is easier almost seems like it has a second answer, a deeper answer. I would suggest that Jesus is saying, my friends, it is going to be infinitely harder to affect the forgiveness of sins than you can imagine. It's going to cost him his life. See, Jesus is saying, I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the Savior. I'm not just a miracle worker. I am a Savior. Any miracle worker can say, take up your mat and walk. But only the Savior of the world, only God himself can say to a human being, all your sins are forgiven. You see, at this moment, Jesus had the power to heal this man's body. He has the power, he has the power to make your career successful. At this moment, he has the power to make that relationship work for you, to give you the recognition that you deserve, to give you the the, the things that you've always longed for. He has the power and the authority to give every one of us what we have always longed for right here, right now, in the moment. No questions asked. He has the power and the ability to do that today. But Jesus knows that's not deep enough. Jesus knows it's not nearly deep enough. He knows that whether we're a paralyzed man lying on a mat, whether we're an employee struggling in our career, or a marriage that's crumbling, he knows that we don't need just someone who can grant our wishes. We need someone who can go deeper than that. Someone who will use his claws lovingly and carefully to pierce our self-centeredness and to remove the sin that enslaves us and distorts our beautiful longings. We need to be forgiven. That's what we need. We need to be forgiven. There's only way for our discontentment to be healed. And it's not by giving us the ability to use our legs. It's not by giving us validity. It takes more than a miracle worker or a divine genie. It will take a savior. Jesus knows that he's a savior who's going to have to die so that we cannot just have our legs working, but that we can have the deepest longings of our hearts fulfilled. Not through stuff, but through a Savior. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We thank you uh, that, God, you aren't just a divine miracle worker, but that you actually came to solve the deepest longings of our heart. That, God, you will satisfy us completely and you will fulfill us completely if we surrender ourselves to you. If we come into a relationship with you. If we repent. Repent of our sins. Repent of the times that we have chosen to pursue ourselves instead of pursuing you. That, Jesus, you will fulfill the deepest longings of our heart if we surrender ourselves into a relationship with you. God, I don't know what we are seeking today. I don't know what it is that we've been longing for. But God, I pray that you would take those longings from us, that we would long for you most of all, because you are the only one who will ever fully satisfy us. Our careers, our, our, our marriages, our children, our, our wealth, these things will leave us wanting more. But Jesus, you will leave us fully full and satisfied. God, I pray that you would do that today. I pray for any of those in here today who have not come into a relationship with you, that they would surrender themselves and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, I'm humbling before the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus, would you save me? Would you come into my heart? Would you have a relationship with me? That you could satisfy me in ways I never thought imaginable. God, I pray for every one of us that you would help us to have our deepest longings fulfilled in you. Because that's the only way they're going to be fulfilled. God, I pray that you would meet with us now. That as you dig deep into our hearts, that we would repent of all those other areas that we're seeking fulfillment, that we're seeking satisfaction, that we've made our Savior. We would never say that, but Jesus, that's what we've done. God, I pray that you would convict us of that. And that today, during this time of response, that we would cry out to you and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm giving this up to you. We love you, and we praise you, and we ask this in your holy and precious name.